Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 31 years we have invited voices of conscience to explore the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Rachel Simmons is an educator, researcher, and author of the best-selling books, Odd Girl Out, The Hidden Culture of Aggression in Girls, and The Curse of the Good Girl, Raising Authentic Girls with Courage and Confidence. A graduate of Vassar College, she attended Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, and it was there that she began her study of female aggression. She's a leadership development consultant for the Center for Work and Life at Smith College, and she's co-founder of the Girls Leadership Institute, a nonprofit organization offering programs for parents, educators, and girls ages 7 to 18 to help them navigate the challenging social dynamics that young people face today. She has consulted with schools and organizations around the world, and her writings and workshops on bullying and harassment have empowered young people to develop healthier relationships. At a time when the tragic consequences of bullying are too often the focus of news stories, we're grateful for the wisdom and expertise she brings to this pressing social issue. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Rachel Simmons. Thank you. Thanks to the forum um, and to you for coming. What a privilege it is to speak in such a beautiful place. I want to start by telling you a little bit about how I came into this work. When I was eight years old, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and I had a friend whose name was Abby, not her real name. Um, and Abby started making my friends run away from me after school. And to this day, I don't know why. I would go running after Abby and my friends, and they always made it out to be a joke, which to me, it of course, was not. My mom would pick me up uh, afterwards, and I would cry. And at school, Abby would tell people not to sit with me at lunch, and she would tell people lies about me so that they would avoid me. I really have no idea why. I do know that Abby seemed to want to take my friends away from me. She wanted me to be alone, and that is exactly how I felt, weirdly, not long ago, she just friended me on Facebook. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> okay, of course I said yes because I was too scared not to. Um, <laughs> some things never change. Anyway, um, I never forgot that experience of feeling so alone, of feeling that I had no one. And years later, as a graduate student in England, I kept thinking about it and went to the library, because Google did not exist then to date myself. I probably would have Googled it. But I went to the actual library and began to look up studies on female aggression. And I was amazed to find almost nothing that reflected my own experiences. What I generally saw was physical aggression, physical violence, and many more studies of boys than girls. So long story short, I ended up doing some of that research myself. I worked in 10 schools in three sections of the country. Um, I worked in New York City where I had lived for many years. 
uh, the Washington DC area, and a very small town of about 2,300 people in Northeast Mississippi. So I, I really tried to connect with as many different kinds of girls, uh, parents, school counselors, and adult women who commented on how the experience had affected them later in life. So what I found um, primarily was that wherever I went, whether it was an incredibly highly resourced independent school in an urban area or a very underprivileged one, was that when girls are aggressive to each other, the attitude that people often show is, well, that's just how girls are, isn't it? That's girls being girls. This, people often say, is developmental. And that's an important word and a word I use, but it's also a word that can convince us not to deal with something. Because if it's developmental, somehow it's normal, and therefore it's not our responsibility. People have all kinds of words that they use to describe the aggression of girls. Um, and many of them are not very nice words. And so what I found was that two words were not being used. Bullying and aggression. We called it all these other names. And what I began to see was that if we don't call what girls do bullying and aggression, and sometimes, and I'll get to this in a moment, we call it too much bullying um, in the last few years, but if we don't call it what it is, I think a few things start to happen. First of all, if you don't call what girls do bullying and aggression, the perpetrators of the behavior, the quote unquote mean girls, are going to live above the law because anti-bullying policies will not be written to reflect what girls do to each other, which often, though certainly not always, can be very different. So people will live above the law if the law is not taking into account exactly what girls are doing. Um, the second thing that happens if we don't call what girls do bullying and aggression is that many of them come to believe that it's totally normal to act like that. In fact, one thing that's, I think, very common for girls growing up is to have a friend who's only nice to you sometimes, who maybe is only nice to you on a Monday or is only nice to you when a certain person is not there or only when you're by yourselves. Many girls come to believe, I guess that's just what friendship is. And part of the reason for that is if you ask a group of young kids to draw you a picture of a bully, and that's pretty uncanny, particularly kids who have not had much education in this area, they almost always draw the same picture, which is that hulking big dude in the schoolyard who takes your lunch money, right, and kicks your butt, and sort of the stereotypical bully guy. I like to think this is the guy who's been in fifth grade for five years, right? <laughs> he has a driver's license, but he's in fifth grade. And, uh, and he has no permanent home. He lives full-time in the schoolyard where he takes your lunch money. And it's weird how people still hold that image in their minds. Um, not just kids, adults can too. But when we grow up in a culture that has made that stereotype prominent, the kids who are being hurt by their friends, and this is very common with girls, are not learning to identify those relational violations. In fact, the stereotypical bully is firstly usually male, usually physically aggressive, and usually an acquaintance or a stranger. He's not hanging out at your house this weekend. But one of the things we know about girls is that they are very likely to hurt their friends. And so what is at stake here is not just protecting kids from bullying outright, but also helping them to understand what healthy intimacy is. 
that it's not okay for someone to only be nice to you sometime, that it's not cool for somebody to get so angry with you every time you have a problem with her that you feel like you're going to lose the friendship with her, to be controlled and to be in fear in that relationship. And these are the things that start to get normalized. I wanna add um, one other thing that I think is really important and also at stake when it comes to girls' aggression and bullying, and that is the future of women's leadership. So here's what I mean by that. I think if you look at the quote-unquote mean girl behaviors, so many of them have in common girls going behind each other's backs or being indirect with their most powerful feelings. So for example, um, if a girl can't say up front, I'm really mad at you, but instead will roll her eyes and maybe go, you know, make a noise, which that is girl speak, right? It's like girl speak for like, leave me alone, get away from me. Um, there's a whole glossary. But if that's how she communicates, and, and we can talk more about why that is, if we don't interfere with that, if we don't say to the girl, you know, this is not an appropriate way to communicate. You've got to develop the skills to express yourself more directly. When you're angry, this is probably a better way to communicate it. That girl is going to import that behavior into other areas of her life. And we don't want a young woman sitting at a meeting hearing about something that she doesn't like, and her only recourse for response is, <laughs> we want more. So there's quite a bit at stake here. Now, um, how, I know I've been talking quite a bit about girls, and that is the topic of my talk today. However, I want to make clear that for the most part, as they get into middle and high school, we see boys engaging in many of the same behaviors that I'm going to be talking about today. Though girls do begin differently um, and emerge soon uh, after three and four years old with certain kinds of aggression, by middle school we see boys catching up. And so much of what I'm talking about here, I do believe applies to boys. I wanna share with you a philosophy that I have about girls and aggression and something, that, something that's come to me after 10 years of being an educator and writing curriculum and working with girls of, of all kinds of ages. And, and that is that relationships are the fourth R, or they should be. We have reading, we have writing, we have arithmetic. Why don't we add relationships to that list? And here's what I mean by that. When you go to kindergarten, you are not expected to be able to add fractions because you're five and you have to learn math in a very basic way. And you're not expected to be perfect at math every time you do it. It's understood, sometimes you're gonna screw up. Sometimes you're not gonna get it right and your failures and your challenges are part of your learning. And it's also understood that you have to practice in order to get better. And it's finally further understood that your parents should not do your math homework or you will not learn math. I know it's not always understood. Um, <laughs> depends on the school. Anyway, um, point being that relationships are so similar that why can't we approach relationships for children as something that involves a set of skills that need to be practiced and learned and sometimes, yes, failed at. And sometimes, yes, it won't go the way we want it to go. But I do believe that many young people and their parents come into school environments with the expectation that my friendships have to be perfect and that if they're not, there is something totally wrong with me or totally wrong with my child. 
And that actually sets everyone up for a lot more anxiety and a lot more pain. We don't look at relationships that way. We stigmatize the people who need help with social skills, whereas I believe we all need the skills in order to be effective at our relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm suggesting that skills are what are needed for targets or victims to respond to bullying. There are situations that don't apply to this. But I will say that the vast majority of challenges that kids face in school when it comes to aggression, and most of it is aggression and not bullying, has to do with needing the skills to be able to deal with it and has to do with parents needing to understand and contextualize their kids' development and see that sometimes things just don't always go that way that you want it to, but that you learn very powerful things about yourself and your relationships when they don't succeed. And we will come back to that. So for the rest of our time together, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the behaviors um, that I have uh, researched and looked at with girls. Um, and, and then, of course, I'm looking forward to taking your questions shortly. Um, but one type of behavior I want to talk about now is called social aggression. And that is behavior that is intended to damage reputation, basically gossip and rumors. I think girls are often synonymous with words gossip and rumors. And when I talk to girls, they say, oh, it's just part of what we do. It's part of who we are. We can't stop it. Now, when it comes to understanding what makes a girl's reputation, I think it's often believed that it has to do with how pretty a girl is or how much money she has, how she dresses, maybe how permissive her parents are. For me, the most important marker or defining element of a girl's reputation are her friendships. It's about who you hang out with. Your social status is dependent on who you sit next to at lunch, who you sit next to on the bus. If you go to a sleepover party, if your sleeping bag is near the wall, you are not as cool as the girl whose sleeping bag is in the middle of the room. If I filled this um, sanctuary with girls, there would be some who would refuse to sit on the end of the pews. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't sit on the end. And I remember these girls from growing up myself because they would somehow know that if I'm not surrounded on both sides by other girls, I'm not as cool. I don't matter as much. So for girls, social status and reputation are powerfully defined by your connections to other people. So what does that mean when we're talking about gossip? Here's to me what it means. When girls get gossiped about, and a very common epithet that may be thrown around about a girl might be that she's gay. So let's say somebody is spreading a rumor about a girl that she's gay. Well, of course it bothers her that this is what is being said about her. But if you really want to understand what is bothering that girl, you have to know, too, that it's the looks that she's getting in the hallway. It's the fact that no one's sitting with her at lunch. It's the fact that suddenly her phone isn't going off with texts. It's gone quiet. It's the damage to her relationships. And if there's any one thing to understand about girls, it's the power of relationships in their lives. And this is, I think, true of women as well. That for girls, their psychological wellness is deeply, deeply tied to the health of their connections with other people. If you're a parent, or if you're a girl, or if you used to be a girl, you probably know this. You know that when your relationships are somehow in trouble, girls often go off the rails. They can't concentrate on school. They can't 
think highly of themselves. They don't interact very well with their peers or with their family members. When I talk with teachers, as I do often around the country, I usually say, you know, I try to describe it as a, sort of the Charlie Brown cartoon. You all remember how the Charlie Brown teacher sounds? When girls are, let's say, getting the silent treatment, someone's ignoring them, they sit down in math class and pretty much what they hear is wah, 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 wah. You guys remember Charlie Brown? Okay. Hopefully the kids still remember Charlie Brown in the audience. Um, that's all they hear. And with girls, you know, they're so good at sitting there and acting like everything's cool, but they're not. So I often say to teachers, you know, she may look like she's in math, but she's not in math. She's in her head going, why isn't that person talking to me? What am I going to do to get her to be my friend again? Who am I going to sit with at lunch? Who knows what's going on? How do I manage to text right now so that this teacher doesn't see what I'm doing? Which is a more recent addition to that list of questions. So the power of relationships and the violence that girls can do to each other's relationships is, I think, where this conversation needs to live. So that when we talk about gossip and rumors, we're really understanding that a girl's relational loss is really the heart of so much of the pain that she experiences and that makes the rest of her life so challenging. As I just mentioned, uh, your text, uh, your cell phone going off is one of those relatively new things um, that kids are, are, are facing and dealing with. And so I do want to talk about social media uh, briefly, which is, of course, the place where so much social aggression occurs. Um, and I want to address parents specifically here about this um, to say that I think that this is an important area where parental authority is desperately needed and where we don't have enough of it. So I'll start off by saying if you're a parent listening or, or in the audience, um, say something, well, I'm just going to say it. If your kids like your technology policy, you're probably doing something wrong. And I promise you, you guys just met me, but you don't know me well, but I never used to say big things like that. Um, I sort of, you know, I never used to be that, that black and white, but I actually am feeling more and more concerned about the amount of leniency that kids are shown. Now, there's quite a bit of material out there about cyberbullying, and I'm not going to talk about that right now, but I am going to make a pitch to you about why I think kids need help in moderating their use of social media. So I believe that uh, there's a paradox of social media. On the one hand, it makes kids, and I'm going to include guys and girls in this, feel pretty great about themselves. For example, um, Facebook, and I think some of you in this audience may not know exactly how Facebook works, but let's just take the average Facebook page. Um, your Facebook page allows you to put forward the most wonderful version of yourself possible. So if you just take the profile page, um, you can bet that if you're looking at a teenage girl's profile page, she has spent a really long time picking that main picture that she is showing to the world, all right? She may have spent like several hours shooting it and choosing it, and then like she puts it up there. And then once she puts it up there, she wants to see how many people like it, but we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. So your Facebook page allows you to put forward this kind of amazing um, version of yourself that resists the insecurities of adolescence, that you know, you'll never put a picture of yourself in which you don't look as good as you want to, or um, you'll put information about yourself that shows that you like certain kinds of books or certain kinds of music. So for an adolescent, 
and I was like this too, who wants to fit in, who feels insecure, your Facebook page lets you control how the world sees you and puts that best foot forward possible. And so that feels really, really good. And then of course, there's all those people who like your profile picture. There is a, um, a number, I mean, I know many, many girls who every time they put up a new picture, they count how many people like it. In other words, how many people have indicated that they think the picture is a good one or just whatever they're indicating. Um, so you're constantly flooded with opportunities to see how people like you. Every time your cell phone goes off, that's a sign. Somebody likes me. I matter. I count. I fit in. And what social media has done is it has taken relationships which used to be very private and it's made them public and tangible so that you can actually see who likes you. You can see and feel who thinks highly of you or who wants to pay attention to you or who wants to hang out with you. And that has given kids a new a sense of, wow, like I can really feel this. The things that I wondered about, I can see who cares. So that's a really powerful drive. If you're wondering, if you have a kid in your life who spends a lot of time hunched over devices um, and looks like they are just kind of obsessively attached to a device, that for many of them is part of the pull. But the paradox is that the very same tools that kids are using to feel good about themselves are also the same things that create anxiety and insecurity, aggression, and just in general discomfort. Um, it can feel awful, actually, to use these technologies. So, for example, let's say you notice that you have 250 friends on Facebook, because now that's very public, but then you look over at somebody else and you see that she's got 450 friends. Why don't I have as many friends? Let's, see you're, let's say you're logging on to Facebook and you have, don't have much to do tonight, and you suddenly notice that someone else who you thought was your friend is uploading photographs of a party that she is at that you are not out. So you can now see exactly where you are being excluded. Let's say you are that girl who uploads her profile picture to Facebook and you notice that only five people seem to have liked your profile picture. What does that mean? Someone else just changed her profile picture and 35 people liked that. Why did 35 people like her but not me? What does that mean about me? This can create the groundwork for what becomes cyberbullying. Why was I excluded? Now I'm anxious, now I'm feeling impulsive, then maybe I'll do something later. So I would say that while cyberbullying is a very serious, powerful problem that kids are facing, what most adolescents are dealing with are those day-to-day -day interactions with social media that can both make them feel incredibly good, but also incredibly bad. And this is why I believe kids need moderation. Um, and we can certainly talk later about different ways that that can happen. Um, but I do want to say one last thing to parents uh, out there, and sort of an argument for why I think it is important to step in and set limits. Remember when you were growing up, the parents of, that you thought were really cool. Like there were a set of parents probably when you were growing up that you thought were the cool parents. And these were the parents in whose basement you could do anything you wanted. 
think you may remember, maybe it rings a bell, or whatever it was. But you could go over to their house and you could kind of do whatever you wanted. And you thought, gosh, mom, dad, why aren't you as cool as my friend's parents? Now, if you're a parent now and you think about those parents, how do you regard them now? You think they're wacky, right? You think, oh my God, I would never want to be that parent. But when you are a teenager, you think they are the bee's knees. They are the coolest people around. And I remember exactly who those parents were. So I think partly parents are parenting right now at a moment where your authority is being called into question more and your confidence has never been weaker. But in some ways, you do have to be that tough parent. You can't be the parent who is the friend. I have women around the country, it's always women who take me aside and they say, Rachel, come here, I gotta tell you something. I'm the mean mom in my kid's class. And I say, what's the mean mom? They say, I say no. And somehow, this is being cast as mean, and this was not so in my generation um, growing up. So to say no is now tantamount to being mean. So we're living in a very difficult moment for parents, um, and I hope that that was just a taste of a little bit about why I think kids need your support in setting those limits. Kids are social media addicts because they're relationship addicts. And that's really what social media is a pathway to. Okay, so moving, moving right along, um, I would like to um, talk with you now a little bit about why it is that girls behave in some of these ways. Let me be clear that there are many explanations for why aggression and bullying occur. I want to focus in on one. For many years, I have been asking girls to answer a question, and that is this. How does our society expect a good girl to look and act? It's a great question to talk about with your own girl in your life or just on the way home or whatever, but how does society expect a good girl to look and act? And what girls have said to me in many different groups, um, subcultures over the years, is that a good girl is expected to be a pleaser, to be likable above all, to be generous to a fault, to always give to others before herself. She's expected to follow the rules, to do everything right, to be a really good student, sort of to be this impossible creature. But what I see in that list is the ingredients for what can become girl bullying and girl aggression. Because if you are expected to be happy all the time and likable and friends with everybody and totally cool with everyone all the time, where are your feelings going to go? When you get angry with someone, when you feel hurt, when you feel embarrassed or betrayed, where will those emotions go? Will you have the skills to express them? You won't. Because when you grow up with that pressure to be a good girl, three things happen. The first thing is that girls lose social permission to express their strongest feelings. It's somehow, boys we just see having more permission to one-up each other, to tell jokes in a particular way. Um, there's, there's just more social permission for guys to express themselves. Not their more vulnerable feelings, certainly. Um, but certainly they will have a wider range of access to feelings that they are permitted to express. We see with girls, not, not the case. So that girls begin to shut down. First grade girls, for example, totally fierce. You need to hang out with a first grade girl if you have not done that recently. <laughs> because they will just break it down for you and be like, let me tell you about who's mean and how I feel about it. 
and they will call each other out in front of the whole class, and you're like, wow, can I have that? I don't know how you do that. And, and then it's, it stops, it changes. Secondly, when you grow up with that good girl pressure, you, ex you see that girls don't develop the skills to express how they feel, because skills are like muscles. If you don't use those muscles, you will lose them. They will atrophy. So girls don't necessarily have the skills to say, you know what, I don't like it when you make that joke about me, and I need you to stop. And so they're unable to. So the third thing that happens is that girls often become fearful of conflict. They are worried that if they say what they really feel, if they try to use those skills, they will, something horrible will happen. And what girls usually say is some variation of this. If I tell my friend how I feel, she won't be my friend anymore. I will lose that friend. Now remember what I told you about relationships and girls. I think if girls had to order in their lives the things most important to them, in order of importance, it would go friends, air, water, food, phone, Facebook. <laughs> so if you think that telling somebody how you feel is going to result in losing the thing that you care about most, well, two things are gonna happen, one of two things. Either you're gonna be totally fake and not share your feelings and start going behind people's backs and maybe texting how you feel or you know, making that noise or rolling your eyes or giving the silent treatment, or you may just simply try to say how you feel and risk losing everything. And this is the choice girls feel that they have to make. But when girls hold back their feelings for too long, this is, the, this is what sets bullying and aggression into motion. I'm gonna conclude with a brief story about myself. Um, when I was about a third of the way through my work on this book, I got together with a childhood friend of mine who I had not seen in some time. Um, her name is Noah. And we were catching up. I said, uh, do you remember that girl, Abby, who was really mean to me? I, I, you know, I didn't know what, what she was up to. This was pre-Facebook. And, and Noah looked at me and she said, don't you remember what you did to me in ninth grade? So I'm going to briefly tell you what I did to Noah and why I think it's important that you know. Um, Noah and I were best friends in fifth grade. We were passionately close, sleeping over at each other's houses every weekend. We called each other the Booger Twins, which we thought was hilarious. Um, she made me laugh so hard, I, I think I lived in the timeout chair my entire fifth grade year. Um, do they still have those? Anyway, um, I was desperate to be popular. And by eighth grade, Noah and I got into the popular crowd. There was a girl, as there often is in, this, in, in groups of girls, who was the one who had all the power. And I could never get very close to her, but she and Noah hit it off very well. In ninth grade, um, after Valentine's Day, Noah and the powerful girl liked the same guy, and the guy gave Noah a rose, and this girl was not happy, and she chose to confide in me about it. It was the first time she had ever told me a secret. And what it feels like to be told a secret when you're so hungry to be accepted. It's like being chosen. It's like some, somehow the sun shines on you and you matter. And I wanted this girl to tell me her secret, except that it was saying terrible things about Noah. And so I made a choice, and my choice was to sell Noah out by letting this girl talk trash about her and by volunteering myself terrible things about Noah so that for weeks I built up a friendship with this girl, all based on trashing Noah. Until one day, Noah did something else small to annoy the girl, and the girl said, 
I don't want to be friends with her anymore. And I said, okay. And from that day on, we stopped speaking to Noah in ninth grade, and she lost everything because then all the other girls in the popular group stopped. Noah left our school at the end of ninth grade and she never came back. And we bumped into each other on the first day of college orientation. We never talked about it until 10 years later when I finally was able to apologize. But I tell you this because I realized after Noah confronted me very kindly was that I had been dishonest. I had been walking around, writing and researching my book, telling the story of Abby, as I, all, as I told you. And of course, most people think when they hear that story, oh, isn't that so sad? She was hurt, and look what she did with it. But in fact, what I did was far worse, yet I didn't want to talk about it. And when I did my research, I suddenly hit me. All of these women and girls want to tell me what happened to them. Nobody wants to talk about what they did. Try it. See if you can get people to tell you about their experience being a bully or being aggressive. Nobody wants to talk. So here's the deal. If we don't start doing that, particularly as adults, especially as adult women, if we don't start being honest about our own behavior, and I can tell you that school after school that I travel to in this country, I'm taken aside by teachers who say, there's no point in working with these kids until you start working with the teachers because they do the same thing. If we as adults, don't look at ourselves. We will continue to tell girls to take their behavior underground, to roll their eyes, to make these noises, and we will not be able to show girls, as we should, that being a truly good girl is not about being liked above all and not about being nice all the time, but it is particularly and especially about having the courage to look at yourself and to say, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Rachel Simmons. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast live from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is educator and author Rachel Simmons. We'll be taking questions for our guest speaker from the radio audience and through Twitter and Facebook. Our Twitter handle is WestminsterTHF, and you can find us on Facebook at Westminster Town Hall Forum. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I invite you to join us here at Westminster for our next forum on Thursday, April 19 at noon, when Parker Palmer will discuss his book, Healing the Heart of Democracy. And now, Rachel Simmons, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question has to do with the frequency of uh, bullying these days. Is it, our, uh, is it a correct impression that bullying is on the rise, or is simply the reporting and awareness of it on the rise? It's a great question. Um, I think we are paying much more attention to bullying than we ever paid attention to it before. Um, it is possible. Uh, I don't think we're able to empirically determine whether or not it's on the rise because we simply haven't done the studies in that way. 
Um, I will say my sense is that people call behavior bullying more often because it gets the attention. It's a word that suddenly has a resonance and because it can get the attention of people in a different way. So, um, for example, I think it's a lot easier to say to a school counselor or an assistant principal, my child is being bullied. Um, and to feel that that is going to get a response, rather than to say, my child is having a, you know, a problem with her friend and her friend is being mean to her. Bullying has become a flashpoint um, for action. The problem is, if everything becomes bullying, then nothing is bullying, and the word starts to lose its meaning. And so, while I think this attention is very valuable, um, and, and it's great that we're using the word. We have to be very careful not to go too far. Um, but I do think that the overuse of it comes from a sense of despair among families that they won't be listened to unless they use that word. Several questions about the difference of bullying or aggression among girls in different cultural contexts. Uh, is there a difference, and, and is there a difference of uh, responding or preventing that bullying in, in different socioeconomic or racial ethnic cultural differences. Sure. In, in my book, Odd Girl Out, which um, was re-released last summer with four new chapters, it was revised after 10 years, um, I, I talk quite a bit about girls who come from um, underserved backgrounds in particular. Now, I've talked today quite a bit about the silent treatment and eye rolling and making noises um, when you're upset instead of saying what you think. But of course, if you grow up in a community where you don't feel safe, and I mean physically safe, then the silent treatment is a luxury that you can't afford. In other words, you have to learn how to defend yourself from an early age if you don't feel safe in your community. So when girls come from lower socioeconomic strata, they are much more likely to use verbal and physical aggression uh, to express themselves. That does not mean that they do not also show these other behaviors. And I think one of the errors that has been made in interventions is that we think, oh, the girls who are poor are all in gangs and they're all beating each other up. And the girls who live in the nice areas are the ones who are using you know, the silent treatment in Facebook. And that's absolutely not true. We see these behaviors um, across a range of groups. Another difference um, that has been uh, seen both by me and others is that African-American females tend to be much less um, influenced by the good girl model. And the very limited research that we have shows that African-American mothers often socialize their daughters from a very early age to assert themselves, to respond um, in the face of any kind of aggression or insult because these girls are growing up black and female in a society that continues to be racist and sexist. So these girls on balance, um, for example, I'll, I'll give you an, an example from my own research. I met a girl, many girls who, um, but there's one girl who I met, she's about 11 years old, 12 years old, took me into her cafeteria at a predominantly black and Hispanic school in Harlem, East Harlem, New York, and she was pointing out different friends I had asked her to. And so she was saying, oh, well, this one's my friend. Then she pointed out another girl. She said, oh, she's not my friend. She's my associate. <laughs> and that was the first time I'd heard it. I thought, what is that? She said, well, an associate is somebody who I do stuff with. I don't know. I remember maybe that kid was like on the yearbook with her. But she's not my friend. I said, what's the difference? Well, a friend is someone I trust, but I can't trust an associate. 
I don't know, I mean, she might be two-faced. These were the words that she was using, and I don't know if I can trust her. Where did you learn that? Oh, well, my mother taught me that. Now, this girl had a built-in security defense system for herself. She knew, I can't trust every single person I meet. You contrast that with girls who, you know, as I like to say, give away all their secrets on the first date, right? They just say, this is, I want to tell you everything about myself, and oh my God, I love you so much. And they're completely vulnerable um, to being taken advantage of psychologically. So that seems to be a very powerful tradition within African-American culture, which unfortunately, I will, last thing I'll say about this is that African-American girls are very often pathologized as being too loud, as being too much, because they're less likely to um, adopt that good girl posture. And that's a real problem too. We have, to pay, we have to pay attention to that. Why would we pathologize those girls and women? Well, I think because we live in a good girl world, in a world that wants its females to act a particular way. Um, so that's been a very powerful uh, education for me, and I think we have a lot to learn there. This is a question from one of the high school students in attendance today. What do you think our generation can do to break this cycle of aggression in girls? Great question. Well, I think every single girl can break the cycle by just telling people how you feel instead of holding it in. Let's just start there. Actually communicating instead of holding it in and holding it against somebody until you get so angry that you explode. So every girl can try to flex her muscles of saying, I feel hurt, I feel scared, I feel angry, I feel frustrated, so that that communication, those skills, will make your relationships healthier. The second thing I think everyone can do is to step up and say something when you see something, to really try to not just be a bystander, but what people call an upstander, to stand up and defend when you see something going on, whether it be online or in real life. If you can't stand up in the moment, tell an adult. If you can't talk back to the person who is being rude, change the subject, make a joke, take the target, walk away. But the reality is, and I say this to young people all the time, I mean, you've heard me talk about my youth, it's been a long time since I was a kid, you can come count my gray hairs, all right? You think when you're a kid, you're gonna grow up and you're gonna be a different person. When I grow up, when I grow up. You're not a different person, you're exactly who you are. You just have gray hair. And you remember, you remember what happened. You remember the choices that you make. Who you are right now matters. It's not like gonna just poof, disappear and you're just gonna be some cool adult who's not under the control of your parents anymore. And I think that's, what I, that's why I tell you that story about Noah and me, and that's why I want you to know it matters who you are now. So think about those choices. I don't want to sound like, you know, we call them an after-school special. I don't want to sound too cheesy here, but it really does matter. Another question from a student. If relationships become the fourth R, who decides the curriculum? <laughs> ah, you crazy kids. Um, <laughs> No, it's a good, I'm, it's an awesome question. I personally, you know, I don't start any, any workshop series that I teach without asking the students what they want. So I personally am a huge believer in youth-led programming or certainly co-creating programming with youth. I think kids should be the people who decide as much as anyone else. 
Um, so I think that's absolutely vital. And I certainly don't mean to suggest that we're going to impose this on you, right, the, the curriculum. Um, but I do think that I want to make one quick point about this. Relationships with the fourth R isn't just about bullying and like your day-to-day -day life as a kid. It's also about your professional potential. Because if you're somebody who's able to express your feelings to your peer, then you're going to be able to do that in the workplace. And I will tell you right now, that's going to count just as much as your paper resume. That's going to count just as much as your grade point average. So if you can't say to somebody, I need you to do this for me, if you can't say that to your friend, you're not going to magically be able to say it in the workplace. So this is a curriculum and a set of skills that we invest in now and that I think we see huge dividends for um, in, in your lives. Another student asked, what are the main differences between boy aggression and girl aggression? Um, well, that's a great question that I love to ask girls and guys themselves. I do think we overstate some of the differences. As I said earlier, we see more pronounced differences when kids are younger. For example, when girls are about three years old, you st three, four years old, you start to hear them say things like, you give me those potato chips or I won't be your friend anymore. Right? You, you do what I want or you can't come to my birthday party. And I'm sure many of you may remember this. That is the onset of relational aggression. And that's the use of friendship as a weapon. Now, guys will come into that, but they come into it much later, later on in elementary school. Um, it's also true, as I said earlier, that guys have access to permission for, to, for more physical aggression. It's just okay for guys to kind of push each other around. I mean, obviously not okay with us adults, but you often do it anyway, in a way that girls simply don't have that same set of permissions. So I think we often like to overstate some of those differences. I know I've been guilty of that as well. But I think the next phase of work needs to be on looking at how much boys actually gossip and roll their eyes and use indirect kinds of aggression and use relational aggression because I think there are more similarities than we are otherwise led to believe and I think it's a great question for discussion among the students here um, and listening as well. Been a good, there's been a good deal in the news recently about the results of gay bullying and how harmful that has been to young people and it's been a front page story here in Minnesota uh, any comments about uh, particular types of bullying around uh, sexual orientation issues and how to respond to those most effectively? Well, I, I do want to say, um, for me, any kind of bullying it becomes an issue of human rights and safety and security of kids and nothing else. Um, it doesn't, I, I think that um, any type of gender-based or sexuality-based harassment and bullying needs to be treated with the same attention that we treat anything else. I do not think that taking a stand on these issues is tantamount to supporting um, you know, uh, homosexuality or gay lifestyle. And I think what I really think is, if you were the person who really was against these interventions, I would love to send that person back into a school for eight hours a day, actually experiencing and witnessing the behaviors that have given rise to this controversy. Because I think once you walk in a kid's shoes and you lose the control that many of us take for granted as an adult, when you can't leave the school, you are stuck there and there's nowhere to go and you don't feel helped and then no adult around you is there to take care of you or to support you. Um, that, that's for me, I think, 
so painful, and I do believe that that kind of experience would probably change the minds of many people who are against these kinds of interventions. Another question from a student. The way a good girl looks in our society varies at, at a global level. How are different cultures of aggression different in other lands? Well, actually, it appears that the hidden culture of aggression persists across many different cultures. Asian countries were the first countries to translate my book. Um, China, Japan, Korea, Thailand. Um, so in the countries where we would imagine that culturally there are just incredibly vast differences, we see that the girls there are, are powerfully asking for, um, for interventions on these issues. I do think that a lot of it has to do with the roles of females in the culture. So the more the culture expects the female to be subservient, subordinate, quiet, um, or tame, the more you're going to see this aggression beneath the radar, the more you're going to see these explosive things coming out of nowhere or going behind people's backs, because the point is there isn't permission. Where there isn't permission, there's not going to be the skills. And that's why I continue to talk about those skills. So often we see adults bullying each other, a primary example being our politicians. Yet, <laughs> yet no one seems able or interested to address this issue and its effect on our youth, and the modeling that's happening here. Can you speak about that? Absolutely. And, um, you know, as I alluded to earlier, if we don't, as adults, take responsibility for our own behavior, it's ridiculous to expect students to be any different. There's no question that from reality programming, which I think has turned uh, humiliation into entertainment, to the culture of schools where adults regularly participate in gossip with other kids, in inappropriate public comments about kids' behavior, um, in behavior that I think communicates to students, you are not safe here, we are not adopting the codes of conduct that we expect you to adopt. It is impossible for kids to change their own behavior and it's unfair of us to ask it. And that's why sometimes I feel very hopeless about some of this work because I can go into a school and I can just see, um, I can see how the teachers behave, I can see how the kids look at me and um, I think so much of what we do as a culture around parenting, for example, is all about do this for the kid, do this to the kid, and it's not very self-reflective, and there's a reason for that, because to look at ourselves is very painful. For me to tell you the story about when I bullied and lost a close friend of mine is incredibly painful. It's hard to see that part of ourselves, but until we do, I think it's hard to make significant progress. We have time just for one more quick question. What will you teach your kids about uh, these sorts of issues and how to ensure that they will have good relational skills? Well, that's all the time we have today. No. <laughs> um, well, as I face that uh, chapter in my life, I, um, I think for me the key is going to be approaching things as the fourth R, that when my child is hurt, that I have to understand that just like my own heartbreaks have given me enormous wisdom in my life, that the issues that she will confront are going to also, while painful and intense, will also teach her what she needs to get out of her relationships, what she wants out of her own life. 
I know I will need enormous support not to go crazy because it's really easy for me to stand up here and tell parents how to act. It's very different when it's your own child. You, you can't see straight. So I think ultimately I'm going to try to adopt that attitude and layer those understandings, layer my desire to help her and support her and love her with the understanding that this is also part of life and that she will learn very important things about herself and others in the process. Thank you so much uh, for coming today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.